Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, especially those who are new to us. Or maybe you've been here for a little bit, but you are not yet a member. We're glad that you decided to make us your church home for an hour today. Well, before I get in the Word, I'd like to let you know, and I've said this on a number of occasions, but it bears repeating because in September, we're going we're to roll out a formal campaign to allow you to participate with us in acquiring property. We are really blessed that God has given us this spot. Uh, it's pretty miraculous. And as, as grateful as we are, we realize this, that because we've been given this and we have proven ourselves at some level, though probably not as well as we should have been, good stewards, God wants to give us more because more people keep coming and it requires in more property. We, we've pretty much run out of Sunday morning slots to do church unless you who enjoy 1045 want to come at 645? Like I said, we've run out of slots to do church. So we've already planted. We've got a site to the north where 350 to 400 people meet. Uh, we, we plan to do more of that, but we really need property in order to establish other congregations in the metropolitan area. Um, because we want to see our, our city one to Jesus. We want to see the entire metropolitan area one to Christ. Now, we know we can't do that on our own. Impossible. But we want to do our part. And our part is establishing congregations, which is going to require that we buy more property. So over the weeks and months, we're going to be outlaying to you what it means for us to do that, costs associated, and vision that accompanies it. Not only acquiring property, but raising up leaders to steward those sites. Uh, the, the program or the campaign is called Next, and we'll be sharing more with you in September and beginning formal offerings to receive them in October. Turn with me over to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. We're going to look at chapter 12. We're going to continue our series on faith, moving from chapter 11 to chapter 12. And today we're going to talk about what it means to run well. The title of the sermon is Faith to Move Forward, Run Well. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside, also lay aside, every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Lord, help as we study your word today. Two things on this passage about which I'd like to speak to you. One, faith-filled examples. Two, what it means to focus on Christ as the producer of the best example in which, by which we can live. The writer of Hebrews doesn't write in chapters, and so chapter 11 is a, is a pre precursor to chapter 12, but we created the chapters um, in order for us to find passages of Scripture better. And so it's a continual thought for him from 11 to 12. And in 11, we've talked about those great heroes of faith. Abraham, Moses, Samson, Deborah, 
the writer of Hebrews works really hard to try to find people in the Old Testament who had impossible and formidable obstacles that must be overcome in order for them to do the, the, the will of God in their life. And they exercised their faith to make it happen. They didn't just have faith to maintain their Hebrew status and somehow wind up in the bosom of God when they died. That they actually used their faith to be more effective than just in the area of salvation. That it could change the reality of the world in which they lived. That faith ought to be that which matters in your life daily. James says it like this, faith without works is dead. He said, some people say, I'll show you my faith by what I think or what I see. I show you my faith by what I do. Our faith is to be that which is active on a regular basis, addressing the concerns of mankind to bring to bear the will of God in areas where it is shut out, to change circumstances, to help people untie the knots in their brains that are prohibiting them from getting free to serve God best. Faith is that which moves things which in the natural are immovable. And the people that he mentioned, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, did that. It's not that they by their own strength of might made them move. It's that they believed that God could help them move things. That if they intentionally inserted him in the process, that he would partner with their strength and multiply it so that God would re remove the circumstance or change it so that his will could be accomplished in the earth. And then he talks about, in summary, here in chapter 12, this great cloud of witnesses. Now, the, the term great cloud of witnesses is probably a term that the writer of Hebrews is using to, to kind of allude to the idea of an audience that is watching participants do their thing. Much like in their day, the Romans at the Colosseum would watch gladiators fight. They would have a favorite and they would cheer them on. He is likening our participation with God today, or back then, the Hebrews to which he was writing, he's likening our work in the earth as that which is kind of sim similar to the guys that were in the field of play in the Roman Colosseum. And that everybody else on the outside is cheering their favorite on. Now, I don't know if he really means that Abraham and David have pom-poms in heaven and they're cheering you on. I, I don't think so. But I do believe that their, their witness of how things ought to be done best, their life lived that produced victory extraordinaire, that allows us the privilege of seeing something that allows us to go into something that we wouldn't have otherwise. Just, otherwise, we'd just have it by theology. We wouldn't have the, the confidence to say... Could God do this? Well, now we have people that he's done it for. And so that witness allows us, and it's a great cloud. It's not just one. It's hundreds in the Old Testament. And sometimes it's a witness of what not to do. There are a lot of people that blew it. And then and, and, and Solomon, 20 years of great living. And then equally 20 years of not so good living. And you say, well, he had it pretty, uh, is he in heaven? Well, I think so, God's merciful. 
But he didn't have the kind of peace and prosperity he should have had at the end of his life. So what do we do with Solomon's example? We say, I don't, I don't want to live so long and so well that I think I can rest on my laurels and not continue to serve God well and forget to read my Bible and to step away from the elementary principles that got me here, even though they are not things that I need to be rehearsing on a regular basis as, as, without moving on to the deeper things in God, they are things that I need to make sure that are foundational to my life on a regular basis. Therefore, I read my Bible every day. I could probably, for the rest of my life, preach to you messages that I pulled from the refrigerator. Ladies, things you cooked yesterday and there was, left, there was stuff left over. What do we call them? Leftovers. I've got a lot of messages, thousands, and you wouldn't know the difference. But every week on a Wednesday, I'm in my Bible. Now, that's aside from the fact of what I do on a regular basis in the morning before the sun comes up. And the only reason I do that, I'm not, it doesn't have anything to do with my level of holiness. I, I can't sleep any longer than five hours. I've tried. I, I've, I've tried. I really have. I, I, I go to bed about 10.30 and I wake up, I mean, without an alarm clock at four. I'm just, oh, Jesus. I really would like to sleep longer, but I'm wide awake. And so I get up, I pray, I study, I read. On, 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 on my days off, I still get up, pray, study, and then go back to bed. Just to try to get more sleep simply because I like it. I like sleep, I really do, but I can't get more of it, and so I'm up doing it. But I've, I've kind of, I've, I've trained myself this way. I, I, I used to be a night person. I didn't like mornings, and, but, but things, things happen during the day that distract me to such a degree that it's hard for me to find my God like I need to at night or during the day. Now I find it, but I need to be calibrated for the things that come my way not just to process what has come my way. And so I need to get up before the phone starts ringing, before the emails start flowing, before all my responsibilities, which are mine to do, overflow my soul. I need to be undistracted and say, God, here I am. I want you to know it's a fresh 24. I do all those things not because I'm paid to do it, but because I love them. I really love them. And I don't love him as well as I should, but I love him more this week than I did last. And this gives me a focus that allows me to know what it looks like to go forward on a regular basis. Even if this great cloud of witnesses are not doing this and cheering us on, they do provide for us an opportunity to say they are a witness for how I ought to live. And there is something about the idea of people having gone before us and informing us about how to do things best. And I'm convinced that this great cloud of witnesses thing is an allusion to a lot of things, encompassing also the principle of discipleship. And that Somehow or another, people who are closest to you can be a witness, whether it's scriptural, 
in that you're actually reading about these folk on that day in your devotional, or whether it's somebody you know who's a little bit further down the road in victory in their own personal life than you are, they can help you and, and being a catalyst to your progress. This great cloud of witnesses is what? They are being an example. They are, they are those that are providing the, 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 the extra oomph for us to do right, be right, and get victory that might be harder otherwise wrought. In, the, in, in professional sports, um, there's a thing called home field advantage or home court advantage. And in, in the, the, this realm, there is a 10% chance in the NBA that if you were to play every game on your home court, you would win 10% of, excuse me, not a 10% chance, you would win 10% more of your games. Now, it's the same court, same ball, same players. Why does a home court have a greater advantage to the home team? Factors, maybe the visiting team has to deal with schedules. They're not sleeping in their own bed. They got food on the road they don't like. They're tired. They played the day before. They got in late. They got to get up early to, to get prepared for the game. Who knows? But it's pretty much, pretty much documented that if a team were to play every game at home, they would win 10% more in the NBA. Now, it drops off till you get to the NFL at 6%. And then it drops off even further with baseball and then even further with hockey. Now, I, I don't know why, but I want to postulate. The closer the fans are, the more the team feels the energy from the room. So in the NBA, you've got them right at the court. It's a smaller arena, 18,000, rather than the NFL, which is 60 to 80,000. And, 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 and in the NFL, it's a home field advantage. But the, 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 the field is the same. Everything's the same. Goalposts aren't any different. Something about the environment allows for the team to win more often. And the closer the, the witnesses are, the closer the fans are to the field, it seems that the greater success the team has. Are, are you listening to I'm about to get into something. Now, there's one exception. The NHL. The NHL has, has fans just as close as the NBA. And their, their, their success rate for, for, for playing on home ice is less than the NBA. But in the NHL, they've got a barrier to the fans. This glass or plexiglass, it goes all the way around the, the ice. And it separates the people who could be most passionate from the players. And in baseball, you play 162 games. <laughs> One game just doesn't matter that much. I mean, the, the fa it, I like baseball. I do. I like it a lot. My dad was, was recruited by the Phillies to play, but he got drafted in the, the Air Force. I love baseball. But you're not near as passionate about one game as fans are in football. Because if you lose today, there's tomorrow. And neither are the players. I mean, the, 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 the players in baseball and football... You, al you, you almost have to get a game face. You, 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 in the locker room, there are rousing speeches before we hit the field. 
The coach has something to say. And then they get in their smaller groups of positions. And each position leader has something to say. The wide receivers to the wide receiver. The, the, the linebacker to the linebackers. Everybody. We go, go, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> They're jumping up and down. Body bumping one another. They slapping one another. We go, go get them. Dang. Folks dancing, coming out of the tunnel, doing all kind of stuff. (laughs) You don't see that in baseball. They play every day. But in football, you got 16 times a year to justify your position on the field. And on top of that, you only have 70 plays, 70, 80 plays, offensive, defense. And there are very few two-way players and almost none. And then those plays in which you are really involved, probably about 20. And you have to be good on those 20. Everything is about intensity. I got to make it today. I got to make it happen today. And the less talent you have, the more intense you are. (laughs) So some people weren't very intense at all, like Daryl. huge when you when you think about the home field you know you want to make sure that the advantage is taken advantage of and when we talk about what it means for us as people Christians to live well you can't do really as well as you should unless there are people close enough to you to cheer you on you need to be discipled You need somebody in your life or a group of people in your life that can understand your weaknesses, your strengths, understand where you are, where you should be, where you're not, so that they can be a catalyst to your progress. You need people close if you want to have a home field advantage. Now, you need this, especially we as Christians in this world, because we are foreigners here. We're playing an away game. We're in this world. It is going the wrong direction. Everything about this is going wrong. Now, now listen, I'm, I'm taking this analogy a long way, but it fits. In the Super Bowl, in national championship games, whether it's basketball or football, they play at a neutral field. They try to make it even, so there is no home field advantage. And they sell as many tickets to either city as, as needed. But those tickets are equal. So if it's a big stadium, they'll sell 50,000 here and 50,000 here. Because they don't want one team to have an advantage over the other. At least a home field advantage. We're playing not just in a neutral field. We're playing in an away game. Against an enemy who hates us. Wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. You need your home fans more than ever. You've got to have other people around you say, you can do this thing. Hey, let's get together. I'll call you in the morning at 5.30. 5.30, yeah, you, you get up and go to work at 6, right? Yeah, 5.30, and we're going to pray together. Well, do I need that? Yes, you do. You need other people around you to help you get the victory that you might not get otherwise. Because we are playing an away game. But we can create, even though it's an away game, we can create a home field advantage by filling the stands with good reports from those who have done it, examples from those who have gone before us, and people around us who can help us. Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, it's almost to say, why would you ever think that failure was an option? Yeah. 
You've got some of the best people ever who are in your, your physical lineage that have gone before you and seen God do this. There is no reason you shouldn't be able to see the same thing. Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses. He says, let us throw off every encumbrance and, and sin that so easily entangles us. The word encumbrance in the Greek is the word okos, O-G-K-O-S. It means weight or burden. There are things that are specific to you that other people might not deal with, that are specific to you that encumber you from moving forward as quickly as you'd like. And then there are things just endemic to all of man that encumber you, that prohibit you from moving forward as quickly as you would like. Those things we need to get rid of. They may not be sin. They just might be issues, things of passion that you have that aren't directed by God, misdirected ideas about what your career ought to be, thoughts that you ought to marry a certain kind of person when that doesn't fit the biblical pattern. All these ideas and, 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 and dreams that you've got that may not be God-inspired, but they might be good. They just might, might not be best. And if you receive them, you might not be at the destination you'd like to be because you didn't bring God with you in it. You didn't accept his plan in the process. And then you got to do some doubling back. Not because it was sin. It just wasn't in the right direction. Encumbrances to your progress. He says, lay them aside. Be proactive. Be intentional. Take those things which are not necessarily sin, but are not helping you, and get them out of the way. Now, sin automatically ought to be gotten out because he says, not only encumbrances and the sin, he says, that so easily wraps you up. You got to get, get rid of them. Play the video. No, I'm Forrest Gump. Just run away, Forrest. this day on, if you're going somewhere, you ought to be running. (laughs) 
one of the things that are holding you back from full stride. Doubt, unbelief, fear. What is besetting you so that you are prohibited from doing that which God has called you to do? Is it desire? Is it the, the desire for something else? Money? Career? When you get to this point, you say, God, once I get this, then I can serve you. Once I figure it all out in my brain, that will never happen. Ever. He will not give you the privilege of having all the dots be connected before you come to faith. At some point, you're just going to have to leap. Not a blind leap, an understandable leap that says you are bigger than my brain. I can't fit all of you in here even if I tried. The information about who you are and that you are is too large for me to process. But I know this, that who you are is enough about what I know now to be able to say yes. You're a good God who cares for me. And you proved it. You proved it by dying for me in the form of your son. You proved your unending care for me and that you gave your son for my benefit. And that's a fact that's undeniable. It's historical. And it's a fact that, that's almost undeniable with respect to, to the proof, even though you have to apply faith to know it's true. The proof of the, of the resurrection of Christ that's found in scripture and the historical proof beyond those who we, we see wrote things uh, in the Bible. There are other things outside of scripture that allow us the privilege of understanding this thing happened. Yes, sir. And he's the only one who has ever risen from the dead by himself, Hallelujah. which means he can be the propitiatory benefit, meaning the sacrifice for our sin. He can be that who can take our whooping. And so we don't have to. Uh, listen, how much more do you need to... Now, you, you won't have it all. You won't. And whether it's salvation or whether it's your next step, you won't have it all. And you will be surprised at some point and say, I didn't know that was going on. I didn't know I'd have to deal with that. There is so much fine print in our commitment contract to God. That you ought to be thankful that he doesn't read it all to you because you'd probably say no. And so he just says it like this. You want to serve me? Die. He doesn't tell you how or what it's going to be like. He just says die. He doesn't give you the circumstances. He just says pick up your cross and follow me. That's what it's going to take. And then a year from now you say, this really hurts. I don't like this at all. I didn't know this was a part of the package. Well, I told you to die. And, and, and I haven't taken that back. So this is what it means now. Set aside your agenda and follow mine. You don't need to know it all. You just need to know him. What is encumbering you from running? He says, lay aside the, the, the sin and the encumbrance that so easily entangles you and run this race with endurance. This race is a long race. I've been going for about 37 years, and I can't stop. I still got to keep doing the stuff that I started doing when I was right with God. I don't use card catalogs anymore and three-by-five cards, <laughs> writing down scriptures and pulling them out and memorizing them every day. I got a phone that does all that for me, which is great, but I still do the same stuff. 
I'm still memorizing scriptures. I got two psalms that I just recite constantly, Psalm 112 and Psalm 26. Do I have to for my own salvation? No, but for my progress, yes. I need these things to encourage me daily that the promises of God are mine because everything in this world tells me different. And so, gosh, this race should never be stopped. It's a long one. My daughter-in-law is preparing to do a marathon. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why anybody runs a marathon. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty fit. I'm in shape. Somebody asked me, you want to do a mutter with me? I said, what for? <laughs> Some of y'all don't know what a mutter is. It's a stupid race. <laughs> it's a stupid race. You know, it's, 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 it's about anywhere from five to ten miles. And you're running over obstacles and s sliding through mud, just putting your body through all kinds of torture. But human beings, some, for some reason, like to do that. I'm fine with about 45 minutes on the treadmill. I'm good. I'm good. But my daughter-in-law is doing a, a marathon. And she's been training for four months. Listen, you want to run long, you're going to have to train. Every day, you're going to have to train. Spiritually, you're going to have to get in your Bible and read it every day. You're going to have to do the things of disciplining your own soul to say no to sin and yes to God. You're going to have to train regularly. And as she's training, she had to start with one to three miles and then work it up to five to seven. And then at, at somehow two weeks prior, she's got to do like 13 to 15. You don't do the whole 26 because when you get to 13 to 15, it doesn't matter anymore because the pain is the same <laughs> it's just horrible it's just horrible except your brain begins to play tricks with you right about 22 to 23 now I've never done this so I've read about it and the only way I will ever know is by reading about it something about 22 and 23 your brain begins to tell you this I'm not doing really well your body's beginning to break down your, your, your stores of fat are gone You've depleted your, your hydration. Um, and, and you're not even digest, digesting the water you're putting in your body very well because the rest of your body is trying to survive. You need to stop. You need to stop. This makes no sense at all. At the end of the race, nobody's giving you an endorsement. Your brain kicks in. There's no money for you in this. It's not like you're doing it and you're getting a record. Nobody's going to write about you for this. Just stop. Sit over. You've done 22. You've done 23 miles. Good job, says the brain. Good job. That's amazing. Take a rest. Don't go any further. The enemy will applaud you for how, long, how far you've come if you'll just stop now. 20 years. Excellent. Take a break. Go on vacation from God. You've, you've, you've said no a lot. Enjoy yourself now. You've disciplined yourself enough. Take a break. Just, just begin. Go on a vacation and do some stuff. It'll be okay. He'll forgive you. you. You run the race to finish. You don't run it to not complete it. He says, run this race with endurance. Quit four horrible letters put together four horrible letters put together I can help anybody who doesn't use those four 
They grumble and complain about life, throw them too many curves, they're mad at God. They got all the bad attitudes you can think about. Doubt and unbelief, all that. I can help them if they'll listen to me. They'll repent, there's hope. But when someone says, I quit, can't help them anymore. Nothing I can say. Quit puts you in a category that only God can reach out to you with his discipline. And because he loves you so much, he'll do it. But you will be more pained in the end and come back thinking, I shouldn't have done that. He says, let's run this race well. Keep doing right long. And let's look to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who started the faith, and he's the one who will end our faith. Now, it doesn't mean end with respect to it stops. It means ending in that he matures it. It brings it to completion. God wants your faith to grow. He wants it to expand. He wants it to be effective, not only in your life, but in the lives of people around you. At some point, we've got to get beyond the point where we are always thinking about ourselves. I'm just trying to get by, Pastor. I'm just trying to overcome. Well, I'm glad. That's better than quitting. That's good. But at some point, you've got to begin to think about others and that your issues are not as important as somebody else's. So let's just believe this, that you seek first the kingdom of God and God will provide all the stuff you need. You begin to provide for other people. That's the way God wants it to be. That's, that's how you grow up. You begin to say, Lord, I don't have time to pray over all the stuff that needs to be addressed in my life. I'm going to do my best, and I, I'm, I'm applying faith now, but there are so many other people who have greater needs than me. Help me to meet theirs. I'm not trying to use God just to get my stuff to make me happy. I'm using my faith to try to make other people better. That's the way he wants us to be. Our faith needs to grow from that which saves us to that which helps us help others. Create the environment whereby people can be better. The author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Why in the world would you want to go through all this pain of saying no all the time, of denying yourself all the time? Why? Because you've got to have your eyes on something other than the pain. You've got to look and say, there's benefit there. After the cross, there's resurrection. There's a life like I've never lived before. Why do I go through? Why do you go through all the stuff you do on a regular basis and say no? Because there is benefit and blessing that comes to you and others as a result. I got some great kids. I got a great family. I'm really happy. But I'm never more happy than when my kids are serving Jesus and being faithful to him in their calling. And I think about it. I say, if I had, if I had derailed 15 years ago and done something really stupid, I wouldn't have my church. I wouldn't probably have my wife though she loves me and whew, she deals with me. she got a lot of patience. But I don't know that my kids would have appreciated their last name. And there are many reasons why I've tried to do right. 
many to honor God, to thank him for the way that he's blessed me, to make sure that my life is consistent and never brings shame to his name in any way. Many reasons for which I've tried to live right. But inclusive of those reasons is when I look at my kids and I say, that makes me really happy for the joy set before me. I endure all that junk because I like the way Garrison talks. I like the way Tellus talks. I love it when my son Brian is worshiping. I love it when Grant is listening to praise and worship music in his room and I'm not there. That there was worth all the sacrifice. There are joys that you need to look at that allow you to endure all the junk who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We gotta look to Jesus, who's the author. Because all these examples that were prior in Hebrews 11 were great, but he is the best one. He's the best one. So we look to him as the one who can complete us. And, 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 And he not only for the joy set before him endured the cross, but he despised the shame. What that means is this. He was confused as being a criminal when he was crucified. Everybody who walked by said he must have done something really bad. I mean, no, Rome doesn't crucify anybody if they're innocent. He's a horrible human being. He must have murdered somebody, must have lied, must have committed the act of treason, something bad. And if anybody would have had the justification to talk about what he didn't do and how righteous he was, it would have been Christ. To prove his righteousness, it says that he could have called down during the process of his torture and, and crucifixion, which lasted about... 12, 14 hours. During that process, he could have called out, it says, 12 legions of angels to deliver him. Now, one angel in the Old Testament dispatched 86,000 soldiers in one night. So a legion is 6,000. 12 times 6 is 72. To deliver him, it would have only taken one. So what do the other 71,999 got, what, what's the Pope? To clean up the entire planet for what he's got to go through. And it would have all been justified because all of us have done things worthy of death. And he didn't do any of that. He took it, didn't say a word, and, and considered the shame that he had to endure as not even being worthy of the breath he would use to justify himself. He said, I'm not going to give any attention to it. I'm going to pass through and let my life be the justification. What a guy. What a God. And it says, lastly, that because of all that, because of what he endured, the hostility of evil men, we need to know what it's like to not grow weary and to not quit, to not fail, to not find ourselves so lapse of spirit that, the, that we don't want to get up and go anymore. Look to him, the author and the perfecter of, of our faith, who endured difficulty unparalleled and yet came out beautifully. Don't quit. But even more important than not quitting is making sure that you progress by letting the cloud of witnesses, whether they be the examples that we see in the Old Testament and new, or the people who are in this room get close enough to you 
to help you in your progress so that you can be better today than you were yesterday, loving him more today than you did last week. Don't quit. Don't become weary. Allow the grace of God to inspire your faith, to overcome the obstacles in your life which are staring you down daily, trying to intimidate you and make you believe that it's not worth going on. And those circumstances are only there to inform you about how your faith should respond. They are factual, but they are not all the truth. There's deeper and more truth beyond those facts. God wants you to experience the truth that though you might have money that's a little funny, though you might have a marriage that's not right, though your employment may not be what it should be, though your health may not be what it should be, there are promises in Scripture, and there is a God who cares for you that wants to address those things, and the avenue through which he gets to your life is your faith to believe he wants to address them. Let your faith become active. Don't let it slumber anymore. Because he who has sacrificed for you, sacrificed for you for more than just to get you to heaven, but to make the earth a whole lot better. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you, you would grace and inspire and help, please, all of us today so that we can live the way we should. Please, help us. To raise our level of expectation and faith so that we can see you inserted into our lives.